You're listening to Secrets for Scaling, a Gecko Board podcast that explores the growth secrets of successful founders and CEOs. For this episode, we talked to Nick Franklin, founder and CEO of Chart Mogul, a product offering SaaS and subscription analytics and revenue reporting. Welcome, and thank you for joining us for Secrets for Scaling. Thanks, uh, thanks for inviting me, Shannon. So to kick things off, can you tell us a bit about how Chart Mogul got started? The idea came from really um, my experience uh, prior to Chartmogul, where I was working at Zendesk, the SaaS uh, customer service software company. I was, uh, my last role there was leading the uh, kind of Asian market, um, kind of international expansion into the Asian markets. And we'd built up kind of a custom dashboard um, to use internally to track kind of our key subscription metrics like MRR, number of customers, and kind of see some of the trends there. And uh, it was actually quite addictive to keep kind of checking this um, dashboard that we created to see um, how, uh, you know, how we were doing, how the quarter was going, how the month was going, this kind of thing. Um, but it, but the, um, the experience wasn't really optimized for subscription businesses or SaaS businesses. Like they, what, the data wasn't updating real time. It was quite hard to answer questions from the data you know if i wanted to see like what the average revenue per customer was in in hong kong versus in malaysia or things like simple questions it was quite hard to get get those answers um so i figured that you know there must be enough sort of subscription businesses out there that would benefit from a sort of dedicated analytics uh solution that was you know serve their needs you know more specifically and i'd been at zendesk for five years at that time so i decided to you know, take the plunge, uh, uh, leave my nice uh, role in a, in a successful business, and 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 go it uh, go it alone, and uh, yeah, and build up build an analytics product sort of specifically for the subscription market. Can you give us an idea of where you're at today in terms of customer numbers and traction? Sure. Yeah. So we're just about to hit 900 paying customers. Yeah, we have a team of 21 people, uh, mostly here in Berlin. Uh, but we have people in uh, Canada, uh, UK, and, and other parts of the world uh, working remotely. And then we, we don't share publicly our MRR, but we're in the six figures um, in, of MRR, so over a million uh, dollars of uh, run rate. Uh, what year were you founded? 2014, late late 2014. And then we we got our first paying customer in January 2015. Yeah, so it sounds like it's been pretty successful couple of years for you. We feel proud, I guess, of, of, of what we've been able to do. Although there's always, uh, if, you know, if you read um, Saster and these other blogs with, from Jason Lemkin, it seems like really the truly best SaaS companies, they get to kind of a million run rate in, you know, 12 to 18 months or something, these kind of rules of thumb. So <laughs> we didn't quite achieve that, but, you know, uh, it's, it's, I, I feel like it was, it's going well. Of course, we could, it was always nicer to grow faster, of, of course. With that, what's been the biggest lesson you've learned so far in your growth journey? I guess the important importance of having of hiring the right team and, and building the right team. Like, I, I, once you kind of prove that there's some initial market there or some initial like customers or initial users, um, pretty much everything else is just getting the right people on the on the boat. Like it's. I, this is probably cliche, and there's lots of books about startups that probably uh, say this. But I, I feel like as the as the founder, CEO of the business, that's like ninety something percent of your job. Once once you've kind of proved that there's some something there, 
is just to hire the right people and make sure you know that they're working together well and everyone's getting along and, and that this kind of thing. But really, just the that's been the the biggest lesson for me. Are there any specific challenges about finding the right people, getting the right people on board that you've been experiencing? In the early days, yeah, I mean, it was tough, especially when yeah when we're just getting started. It was it was tough for sure. Like no one had heard of us. We, we just moved to Berlin, so we're kind of new in town. Just trying to find those first people. I didn't have any network in the in the city, so I, I started to go to um, like meetups. I actually met my first uh, kind of post uh, seed. We got a, a seed uh, round of funding from Point Nine Capital, and uh, in December of uh, 2014, and then you know right right at the start of uh, 2015, I went out to say, okay, better hire some people, and but I don't know anyone. So went out to uh, some meetups. I actually met my f- first hire at a product hunt meetup in Berlin. I think it was the first product hunt meetup in Berlin, and uh, he's our direct Ed, our, still our director of content uh, today. Um, so, but as I found, as things have gone forward, uh, uh, as the teams got larger, it's become. Um, easier and easier, especially like uh, it was really hard to find uh, engineering uh, engineers willing to come aboard. Uh, obviously, engineering is like in very high demand uh, discipline, so persuading good engineers to, to join your your company is is tough when you're just starting out. But now we have a you know, about half the company I think is involved in, in product or engineering of some of some sort at the moment, and uh, you know we have a whole hiring process and we've got much better at it and uh, we've, we've had a lot of it's just become like a thousand times easier in the last six months to kind of hire and recruit engineers but I think it's just one of those things where you have to get the a few people and then it becomes much easier over time that's that's what we've been finding anyway and is that just because the field is so competitive that they kind of have their pick a company so brand awareness matters I think so yeah like as de- definitely that that's a big part of it and we've been Part of it, I think, is the the company and the product and the brand that we've built over the last um, two or three years. Um, we have a lot of um, also developer products, uh, like things like CodeShip and Sentry, and these kind of develop products that uh, developers use day to day. So it's they can kind of relate to what we're doing, perhaps, and and more of them might have heard of us if they've been working for other SaaS companies. They might have uh, heard of what we do. But, but I also think it's having a the right um, engineering leadership as well like you know they know that they'll be working for you know among peers that they can kind of learn from and and these kind of things whereas if they're just joining a a team with just one or two people who aren't that technical there's probably not uh, as much learning they can do they're not joining a team so now a new engineer joining our team gets to learn from uh, the other people in the team contribute there's good leadership in place these kind of things so I think once you get all, all those pieces into place, the brand, the customers, the product, and the, and the team in place, it just becomes much easier to be an attractive place for an engineer to join. I guess. Did you also face challenges in knowing who the right people to hire were in the early days? Absolutely. It's not always clear. Like You get some initial traction with the product, and you think it's not always clear what you should be investing in, especially as a first-time founder. It's like, should I be investing in, in sales and marketing now because we're getting some customers so let's let's start spending money on on uh, sales and marketing or, or even on paid advertising things like this when in in hindsight i would have probably done that a bit later and and just really invested heavily into engineering earlier on because that's like it's you know when, when you're just starting out the product isn't very mature it needs a lot of 
love and investment and uh, it's not ready to scale yet. So I think probably there's a temptation once you start to get that initial demand to kind of say, okay, let's start to scale that up. And I think a lot of people make the same mistake as scaling sales and marketing too early. Uh, so definitely, uh, definitely, I would have probably tried to scaling engineering before sales and marketing. And I'm sure I got the balance perfect with this company, but I feel we, we've got it right now. At the stage that Chart Mogul is currently in, it's pretty typical for the founder to be transitioning from a maker role to a manager role. Is that true for you? Yeah, absolutely, definitely. I, I no longer am responsible for every every part of the business. We have a you know head of engineering, a head of customer success, and customer support, uh, someone to run uh, finance and the operation side uh, of the business, which is a huge relief for myself because uh, <laughs> I, I, I'm not the best and I tend to not really have the best attention span when it comes to these, uh, these kind of, um, you know, you know operational, operational parts of the business. So yeah, like having, and then we have a you know, head of content. Um, so yeah, over time we're, we're adding all the the people that can lead the different various functions of the, of the business. We still don't have like a kind of VP marketing. We don't have a, a VP of sales yet, but these are these are positions we'd like to fill for sure. Yeah. How have you made that transition a success so far? Or would you say that you've made it a success? Well, it's still ongoing. Like I, I, I still pretty much um, I'm heavily involved in in product. I'm heavily involved in in sales still and, and marketing. So it's, it's, it's ongoing. It's, it's happened in engineering quite well, uh, because we have about half the company or nearly half the company's engineering. So we have some head of engineering and structure in place there. So that's, um, that's working out really well in, in customer success and customer service. That's working really well. The other areas we just haven't, uh, I guess we just haven't got around to it yet. The biggest lesson for me has been, I think, promoting from within whenever, whenever possible. You know, if you have a, a bunch of uh, people doing the job and, and it's clear that one person is kind of the, the natural leader and kind of steps up, then that's, that's really a, a great thing and a, and, a, and a truly great thing to have happen. It doesn't always happen, of course, and sometimes you have to hire from outside, but I think that's a really nice thing for the company, uh, for the culture as well, and uh, uh, to, to kind of promote people up from, from within. But yeah, I think, yeah, just letting go. I think, I think, I mean, the main thing is just um, to find people that are really, really competent that you know can just do the job like, and, and, and clearly can do the job much better than yourself. That's, that's the key. And it's, of course, that's, you know, finding really, really competent people is, is tough, uh, but you just have to, just have to do it. And then, you know, just to be when you do make hires, never make a hire unless if you if you have any doubt about it. I think there's a there's a phrase I heard somewhere where it's like uh, if you have any doubt, then there there is no doubt. Just um, just don't make the hire. So just uh, you know, sometimes it takes. You know, for our head of finance and operations, it took um, about a year and a year or so to find that that person that we felt uh, was the right fit. So some, sometimes I, I think just hiring slow, um, taking your time until you find someone that you're really really confident. Uh, can do the job like way better than yourself is is just gonna own the own the problem uh, this is the kind of key I guess to building that that team that you can that you can rely on I'd imagine that gut instinct plays a bit of a role there too when it comes to at least cultural fit if nothing else you're probably right like a lot of building a, a great uh, management team is is also the people's ability to work well with yourself as the founder so that's that's obviously part of it and who you think you're going to work well with and, and uh, be able to trust to 
to kind of take ownership and get things done. Um, absolutely. A lot of that, I guess a lot of that does, but then, you know, also track records. We, we always do uh, reference checks and things like that to make sure that, you know, we cover all our bases. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. We're, getting, we, we're, we're, getting, we're getting better at it uh, as, as we go along. As you're in this transition phase, how do you get the business and how do you get and keep the business and your team focused on the direction you and your investors want to be in? About one third of the team is remote. So having... Having regular meetings, I, I, I try to um, have one-on-ones with all my direct reports regularly. I'm not always the best at, at making sure they are super regular, but but I do. Uh, but we do try, and everyone in the company tries to do uh, one-on-ones with their direct report uh, regularly. And then also having um, kind of all hands meetings. We tend to every quarter have a once a quarter have a kind of all hands where we kind of do a longer a longer thing. And then every two weeks we have a, a quick stand up where one person from each uh, department just kind of speaks for one or two minutes about what, what's been going on, um, what they've been working, what that uh, department's been working on for the last couple of weeks and what they'll be working on for the next two weeks and, and that kind of thing. Just so everyone in the company kind of knows what everyone else is working on and there isn't, um, there's alignment there and people, no one's surprised when they hear, when they hear things that they should have heard before and things like that. So we've, uh, yeah, we, we recently invested in, uh, a proper uh, video conference, like video conference setup, like nice, six, like nice sixty-inch television with the wide-angle lens and, and uh, boardroom uh, mic speaker thing, so that everyone, if people aren't in the office, they can feel like they're, they can feel like they're almost there, and the audio is really good and that kind of stuff. So that's kind of helped for kind of bringing everyone together. Um, I think that answers your question <laughs> yeah. a, little, a little bit. That's more about remote stuff, I guess, than, than alignment, but. Um, yeah, I, I guess in terms of alignment, it's just about setting. We, we you know, we kind of set the the kind of main primary goals of the company, and then you know, just kind of keep reiterating them, um, and, and try and set some kind of timeline around different projects and when they should be kind of when people should be aiming to have those complete. Uh, I think that's yeah, that's how we approach things at the moment. When do you know the time was right to start building a management team? I think I, I knew from day one, honestly, um, <laughs> because uh, I, I was a solo founder. So I realized from day one, the more help I can get, the better. So I, I started looking from the from day one to for, for people that can really uh, help me uh, help me run the thing. Yeah. So. Switching gears a bit. You guys are experts on SaaS metrics, obviously. At the stage of growth your business is at, what's the most important SaaS metric for you right now? Right now, I think we're right now we're focused on customer churn, and our, our customer churn isn't that high. It's around three percent or something like this. It's not too high. It might even be less. I can't quite remember. But but the the key causes of the churn are things that we think we can solve with engineering, basically, and product development. Like we we kind of we we do an NPS survey quarterly, and every time someone uh, does cancel, we do a sort of exit. Um, you know, sort of an interview with them where we ask them their reason for canceling. And we, over 50% of the time, the reason is not, you know, the price or they're unhappy. It's, it's just, it's sort of limitation in the, in the product. So we're, we're really focused on addressing those limitations in the product. And we hope that that will drive down our churn. And, and there's a, there's a bunch of reasons for focusing on, on churn, uh, at our stage. One is that, um, as you get as you get larger, um, as your MRR gets larger, um, that the churn uh, has a bigger and bigger and bigger impact. 
So uh, where you have to add more and more new business uh, every month just to get to zero from the from the impact of churn. So when you're small, churn isn't low MRR. Churn isn't so so crippling. But as you get to scale, churn becomes a major inhibitor to to growth. And the other main reason that we're focused on it is that uh, word of mouth is by far our number one kind of customer acquisition channel. And of course, if 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 um, companies uh, cancel, they're probably no longer gonna give uh, good word of mouth. <laughs> so. Uh, Solving, you know, those issues where you know we, we want to aim for you know get as close to 100% retention as we can. Of course, there's a few there's a few uh, reasons for churn, like people are you know are changing their business model or or they're you know it's not things aren't going well or something like this. Where that might be another reason where you can't do anything about it. But we believe that the majority of the the reason we the majority of the churn we can uh, we can fix. With, with product development. As you collect and analyze the MPS data and are talking to your customers, have you already identified strategies for helping with retention? And if so, are you comfortable sharing them? Absolutely. Um, I mean, a lot of it is just around some small things in the product that people aren't quite happy with. Like they, you know, maybe they can't quite get the numbers the way they want to because they're the data... Um, in their billing system, you know, at any scale, once a company gets to a certain size, they usually have some data in their database or, or billing system relating to how they invoice their customers that isn't in the in the cleanest format. So they'll import that data, and of course, that that you know, if if there's the data's a bit messy, it can create a skewed uh, result in our in our product. So having some ability to manually kind of or automatically sorry uh manually or automatically kind of clean the data um if it has you know if it's not always in the in a perfectly structured format is something that would help uh, that's a big one that would help uh some of our customers that that's one that's one complaint that we can fix with with engineering that's one example there's a, there's a lot of other like smaller ones we, we know about that that um we're, we're working hard to address address those issues, yeah. When identifying these metrics, like churn or any of your other growth metrics, do you use a particular framework or process for identifying those? Um, well, we, I mean, we use obviously ChartMogul for <laughs> uh, measuring the most of our subscription metrics like MRR, lifetime value, churn, retention, all these kind of things. We collect NPS, we use Typeform, which is a really nice, um, you know, I think a lot of people know Typeform at this point, but it's a really nice way to collect, uh, collect you know, surveys and forms uh, to collect data from customers. Uh, they're also a customer of ours, which, uh, which we're very proud of. Um, and uh, that's, that's really nice. Uh, you know, we usually do an in-app in message uh, using Intercom, link, link the customer through to a type form, and then we, we collect the NPS score that way. And uh, we actually just, the, the most, most useful part of the NPS score for me isn't necessarily the score. The score gives a nice benchmark of how, how well perhaps the, the service is uh, improving or, or not. Uh, but it's, um, it's, the free, it's the free text comments that people leave. Um, so we get you just get huge amounts of feedback from those free text comments. It's like like really invaluable, and we just dump it into a Google Sheet and share it with the whole company, so everyone can see, like this is this is what people care about. This is what, <laughs> and uh, that that's really helpful. I usually you know share it with the whole like, 
customer success, product engineering team, like, guys, you have to read this stuff. We, we have tons of like feedback all the time, but we try and kind of crunch it and uh, create a roadmap that addresses, uh, you know, our desire to build new features, but also improve and fix things that are already there. We've noticed that to build predictable growth seems to be the number one question for founders who are scaling a business. Do you feel like you have predictable growth right now? You're absolutely right. Like the, <laughs> it's probably it's, having scaling is, is one of the hardest parts. Like once, you, you know, once you get past that kind of initial, initial traction, you know, you, you, you know, you pass a hundred thousand in, in, in uh, MRR, how do you scale? How do you keep up your percentage growth? You know, Saster, there are, Jason Lemkin's always talking about growing at 10% month over month, which is in, incredibly hard. It, obviously <laughs> it kind of sounds easy, but it's actually incredibly difficult once you reach uh, six figures in MRR. So I would say for some of our business, it's fairly predictable. And for other, other parts, it isn't. Like we, we have a fairly predictable stream of, you know, trial signups, inbound leads coming in, uh, which we, is mostly driven by, by word of mouth. And that's fairly predictable. But, you know, we're, we're also experimenting with other things we can do. Like with one of our largest uh, sources of, of leads is, is content uh, and content marketing. And that's highly unpredictable. It's a bit like, it seems to be a bit like the movie industry or something where you can produce one piece of content and it's a total blockbuster and you get like, you know, 10,000 hits uh, uh, views of the piece in the first day and it keeps uh, paying off over time. And then some pieces just flop and it's highly unpredictable. <laughs> yeah. So we, we talk sometimes uh, uh, in, our, in our team, like how, how, can we, how can we increase the chance of something being a hit and, and, and uh, reduce the chance of it not taking off or not being as useful as, or as uh, appealing and engaging as we thought it would be. So that part is like highly, highly fluctuates. Have you found any answers to those questions? How do you approach that when you are trying to identify what is going to work more predictably? I, I guess we, um, we've kind of analyzed what worked in the past. So sometimes we did get pieces where we published them, like we published something called the SAS metrics cheat sheet, the ultimate SAS metrics cheat sheet. It's like a two page cheat sheet where you have um, all the SAS metrics like MRR, churn rate, really summarized into a nice, well-designed two page summary. Um, and this took off really well and, and kept uh, paying dividends over time. And we, and we had a few other hits like this. Um, we had one where, that Ed wrote called um, The Rise of the API SaaS. And what we found, and, and, and there's been a couple of others, is that usually it's like right at the, there's kind of some sort of nascent conversation going on or demand there where it hasn't reached the full mainstream yet, but it's kind of uh, on, on the, a topic or, or something like that is kind of right, it's kind of on the rise. And people are talking more about it uh, and it's growing in importance and trying to, so it's kind of, I hate this word, but like zeitgeist, uh, where it's like highly topical and, and uh, having a great title really helps as well. Because uh, obviously that's the first thing people see when they, before they even read your, your content is the title. So we found that having a really great title, having something that's really topical or zeitgeist, but that hasn't reached like full mainstream saturation in the kind of public conversation that's happen, happening on social media. And if you can kind of nail, kind of nail something that's like really relevant at the right time, at the perfect timing, 
you know, just a, just a couple, just a few weeks before it really becomes mainstream that's as to the conversation about whatever the topic is, then that's when it's worked really well. And we've done it probably only about four or five times over the last two years or so. But when it works, it works really, really well. So I guess we're, we're kind of consciously trying to, for each new um, piece of uh, content that we decide to write about, we con- consciously ask ourselves, does this tick those boxes? Is there a chance that it, it can it can tick those boxes and, and be a, be a success. And not all content, obviously some things that we're, you know, we're just announcing a new feature or something like that. It's fairly, you know, run of the mill stuff, but for, for the, the more um, opinion piece or thought, thought leadership piece or something like that, we try and try and see if we can contribute in that, in that way. Yeah. Once you identify those things at work, it's kind of tough to do them at scale because they lose it dilutes it, right? Like it's going to have more impact if you're not creating those awesome pieces of content every week, but rather it's every now and then. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, we did it. I mean, we're also, um, you know, guilty of that. Like we did one cheat sheet and so we decided to do a bunch more cheat sheets. But I guess the nice thing about a cheat sheet is it's kind of a resource that you can keep coming back to if it's done really well. So even if it doesn't, not all of them took off in a big way, but if it's done well, it's kind of, useful to go back to but um you know not all of them did as did as well as as the first one i think another i think there was another one of them the ultimate churn churn cheat sheet or something like that did really well it took off it was on the like the top of hacker news for the day and so these kind of things but you can't really control it but certainly like if you have a good idea it uh and it's usually it's usually a, a good idea because it's an original idea so the next time you do it it's no longer original and therefore it's kind of worn you've kind of worn off <laughs> right <laughs> so so what do you think you mentioned good titles what do you think makes for a great title i i'm not sure like something something that makes i i, I think i think uh i'm not an expert but i think something that you you kind of know what the article is going to something you, you kind of know what the article is going to say a little bit it's like a teaser for the for the con for the main piece, right? Like you kind of know, okay, this is you see it. Ah, oh, okay, I kind of know roughly what this is going to be about, and it's something I think I'll find interesting, so I want to read more. Um, I hate clickbait and those kind of uh, titles where it's like disingenuous to the to the user, um, to the reader, which the internet's obviously full of these kind of titles. Like you won't believe what you're about to see <laughs> this kind of thing. Uh, that's, that's, that's just horrible. So yeah, I don't, I don't know if I have a great answer there, but I think it's, it's something that makes you want to read more. It gives away a lot about what you're going to be, what the main piece is about. Uh, and makes you want to read in more detail what it's about and, and have some punch to it, you know, like uh, not just, uh, can't, can't just read uh, super plain, you know, it has to have some, some kind of punch to it. Uh, not, not just bland. Uh, in the way it reads, I guess. So switching gears again a bit, how have you found balancing work and life as a founder? Is there anything that's been particularly helpful with striking that balance? I think Zendesk, where I worked before um, before starting Chart Mogul, which was uh, started by three Danish founders, you know, t- two of which at least had, had families at the time. I think all three have families now, but um, two which had families at the time. And I think they kind of set the tone at Zendesk is like, this isn't a startup where you, you have to kill yourself for us to do well. You know, it's not like uh, some sort of uh, crazy, um, uh, you know, work hundred hour weeks and uh, sleep at the office kind of thing. And, and Zenes was a very successful business. We um, IPO'd on the 
New York Stock Exchange, etc. So it's that experience, and you know, kind of showed that you know you don't have the bet. The thing is to work in a smart way um, and not in a kind of obsessive way where it's like diminishing returns after a while. So um, uh, for me, uh, just um, trying to be smart about my time. Um, also, I have a we had a baby 18 months ago, so uh, me and my wife. So uh, these days, I, I generally spend the weekends uh, taking care of uh, our daughter for the most part, and and uh, you know I maybe work a little bit uh, when she's napping or in the evenings on the weekends. But generally, weekends are more for family time, and uh, I'll just work late on the week on the weekdays if I need to if I need to catch up or do a bit more work than than is normally fitting into. A, normal work week so yeah it's tough though for sure it's there's no there definitely there there is always more work than it's possible to do in a day so you just have to ruthlessly prioritize (laughs) and uh and uh yeah there's no silver bullet there prioritize and forgive yourself when you don't get to everything seems to be another big one yeah and and getting really you know there there are there are just too many uh channels uh where people um email you a lot of it's cold email so you have to just become really ruthless <laughs> at uh at basically not uh, always answering every email i mean a lot of it's unsolicited so that's it's fine and uh you know uh, and answering the, the ones that are actually personal emails that are important to, to reply to and things like that so so being um just really efficient with communication channels because otherwise that stuff can just eat up your whole all your time and being good, <laughs> learning how to use like the mute function in Slack and things like that. The the channel mute function helps because Slack can also it's a, it's a it's an amazing tool, but it can also uh, be highly distracting for getting stuff done. I think uh, thirty seven signals are great. It's, <laughs> they've written a lot about that. So this is a big question, but if you could pick just one thing and explain it in a minute or less, what do you think the secret to scaling is? The secret to scaling. I'd, I'm not sure if there's any 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 big secret. Um, I, I think it depends on the the type of business. So I think there's one thing, or there's about three business models and three kind of acquisition cha- acquisition models in SaaS. It's like if you're very lucky, you have the kind of viral uh, loopback effect, and if you have that, the secret is just to do everything in your power to optimize that. And there's a bunch of metrics around measuring viral coefficiency, I think, and things like this. And I'm not an expert on that at all. And then the two more common models are sort of more inbound model and the uh, more of an outbound enterprise model uh, or traditional model. So I, I have the most experience in inbound. And I think uh, the main secret is, is just to drive demand via word of mouth because that is usually always going to be the biggest channel. And, and you can only really control that by just investing in your product and your service and trying to make it better and better and, and also building your brand and investing in your brand over time. And there, and, and there is no, there is no silver bullet or secret to doing that. Uh, it just takes a lot, a lot of time and investment. Uh, but I think it over time it will pay, it pays dividends and it will amplify that the word of mouth effect that you get um, for your product for outbound. I mean, it's, it's, it's a whole different set of uh, for for those, for those type of business models, a whole, whole different set of, uh, Issues is about managing sort of a sales pipeline, uh, SDRs and BDRs at kind of the top of the funnel, uh, people to close the deals and retain the customers and these kind of things. So 
that's not a great answer to the to a single sentence that's the secret to scaling. <laughs> um, but I think uh, I don't think there is one. <laughs> I guess if I had to, if I had to it write sounds, one question. <laughs> it sounds like with the focusing on the inbound specifically that by building a genuine brand and a quality product, you're kind of you're setting yourself up to build a loyal customer base, and with that loyal customer base comes comes better retention and better opportunity for scale. Would you say that's true? Absolutely, yeah, absolutely. And and I mean, um, I think with most SaaS companies like that are that are very inbound, um, you know, doing paid ad campaigns and field marketing, and and these things, it, they can they can move the needle a little bit. They can kind of make the curve a little bit more, a little bit steeper. But the main the main drivers are the the kind of product um, word of mouth via the existing customer base and the and the kind of brand etc and, and all the other activities is you definitely should do it like it's important going to events meeting customers producing great content um doing podcasts etc but and, and i think that's all about kind of just tilting the 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 curve a little bit steeper something like that that's my theory <laughs> yeah no that makes total sense this has been awesome nick this has been a really great conversation thank you so much for joining us Oh, thanks for having me, Shannon. Really appreciate it. Thank you for listening to Gecko Board's Secrets for Scaling podcast. Hope to catch you next time.